Chapter One of Triplanetary First in the Lensman Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Triplanetary First in the Lensman Series by E. E. Doc Smith. Chapter One Arisia and Edor. Two thousand million or so years ago, two galaxies were colliding, or rather were passing through each other. A couple of hundreds of millions of years either way do not matter, since at least that much time was required for the interpassage. At about that same time, within the same plus or minus ten percent margin of error, it is believed practically all of the suns of both those galaxies became possessed of planets. There is much evidence to support the belief that it was not merely a coincidence that so many planets came into being at about the same time as the galactic interpassage. Another school of thought holds that it was pure coincidence that all suns have planets as naturally and as inevitably as cats have kittens. Be that as it may, Arisian records are clear upon the point that before the two galaxies began to coalesce, there were never more than three solar systems present in either, and usually only one. Thus, when the sun of the planet upon which their race originated grew old and cool, the Arisians were hard put to it to preserve their culture, since they had to work against time in solving the engineering problems associated with moving a planet from an older to a younger sun. Since nothing material was destroyed when the Edorians were forced into the next plane of existence, their historical records have also become available. Those records, folios and tapes and playable discs of platinum alloy, resistant indefinitely even to Edor's noxious atmosphere, agree with those of the Arisians upon this point. Immediately before the coalescence began, there was one and only one planetary solar system in the second galaxy, and until the advent of Edor, the second galaxy was entirely devoid of intelligent life. Thus, for millions upon untold millions of years, the two races, each the sole intelligent life of a galaxy, perhaps of an entire space-time continuum, remained completely in ignorance of each other. Both were already ancient at the time of the coalescence. The only other respect in which the two were similar, however, was in the possession of minds of power. Since Arisia was earth-like in composition, atmosphere, and climate, the Arisians were at that time distinctly humanoid. The Edorians were not. Edor was and is large and dense, its liquid a poisonous sludgy syrup, its atmosphere a foul and corrosive fog. Edor was and is unique, so different from any other world of either galaxy that its very existence was inexplicable until its own records reveal the fact that it did not originate in normal space-time at all, but came to our universe from some alien and horribly different other. As differed the planets, so differed the peoples. The Arisians went through the usual stages of savagery and barbarism on the way to civilization, the age of stone, the ages of bronze, of iron, of steel, and of electricity. Indeed, it is probable that it is because the Arisians went through these various stages that all subsequent civilizations have done so, 
since the spores which burgeoned into life upon the cooling surfaces of all the planets of the commingling galaxies were Arisian, not Edorian in origin. Edorian spores, while undoubtedly present, must have been so alien that they could not develop in any one of the environments, widely variant although they are, existing naturally or coming naturally into being in normal space and time. The Arisians, especially after atomic energy freed them from physical labor, devoted themselves more and ever more intensively to the exploration of the limitless possibilities of the mind. Even before the coalescence, then, the Arisians had need neither of spaceships nor of telescopes. By power of mind alone they watched the lenticular aggregation of stars, which was much later to be known to Tellurian astronomers as Lundmark's nebula approached their own galaxy. They observed attentively and minutely, and with high elation, the occurrence of mathematical impossibility, for the chance of two galaxies ever meeting in direct central equatorial plane impact and of passing completely through each other is an infinitesimal of such high order as to be, even mathematically, practically indistinguishable from zero. They observed the birth of numberless planets, recording minutely in their perfect memories every detail of everything that happened, in the hope that as ages passed either they or their descendants would be able to develop a symbology and a methodology capable of explaining the then inexplicable phenomena. Carefree, busy, absorbedly intent, the Arisian mentalities roamed throughout space until one of them struck an Adorian mind. While any Adorian could, if it chose, assume the form of a man, they were in no sense manlike, nor, since the term implies a softness and a lack of organization, can they be described as being amoeboid. They were both versatile and variant. Each Adorian changed not only its shape, but also its texture in accordance with the requirements of the moment. Each produced, extruded, members whenever and wherever it needed them. Members uniquely appropriate to the task then in work. If hardness was indicated, the members were hard. If softness, they were soft. Small or large, rigid or flexible, jointed or tentacular, all one. Filaments or cables, fingers or feet, needles or mauls, equally simple. One thought, and the body fitted the job. They were asexual, sexless to a degree unapproached by any form of Tellurian life higher than the yeasts. They were not merely hermaphroditic, nor androgynous, nor parthenogenetic. They were completely without sex. They were also, to all intents and purposes, and except for death by violence, immortal. For each Adorian, as its mind approached the stagnation of saturation after a lifetime of millions of years, simply divided into two new old beings. New in capacity and in zest, old in ability and in power, since each of the two children possessed in toto the knowledges and the memories of their one parent. And if it is difficult to describe in words the physical aspects of the Adorians, it is virtually impossible to write or to draw in any symbology of civilization a true picture of an Adorian's, any Adorian's mind. They were intolerant, 
domineering, rapacious, insatiable, cold, callous, and brutal. They were keen, capable, persevering, analytical, and efficient. They had no trace of any of the softer emotions or sensibilities possessed by races adherent to civilization. No Edorian ever had anything even remotely resembling a sense of humor. While not essentially bloodthirsty, that is, not loving bloodshed for its own sweet sake, they were no more adverse to bloodletting than they were in favor of it. Any amount of killing which would or which might advance an Adorian toward his goal was commendable. Useless slaughter was frowned upon, not because it was slaughter, but because it was useless, and hence inefficient. And instead of the multiplicity of goals sought by the various entities of any race of civilization, each and every Edorian had only one, the same one, power, power, power. Since Edor was peopled originally by various races, perhaps as similar to each other as are the various human races of Earth, it is understandable that the early history of the planet, while it was still in its own space, that is, was one of continuous and ages-long war. And since war always was and probably will be linked solidly to technological advancement, the race now known simply as the Edorians became technologists supreme. All other races disappeared. So did all other forms of life, however lowly, which interfered in any way with the masters of the planet. Then all racial opposition liquidated, and overmastering lust as unquenched as ever, the surviving Edorians fought among themselves, push-button wars employing engines of destruction, against which the only possible defense was a fantastic thickness of planetary bedrock. Finally, unable either to kill or to enslave each other, the comparatively few survivors made a peace of sorts. Since their own space was practically barren of planetary systems, they would move their planet from space to space until they found one which so teemed with planets that each living Edorian could become the sole master of an ever-increasing number of worlds. This was a program very much worthwhile, promising as it did an outlet for even the recognizably insatiable Edorian craving for power. Therefore the Edorians, for the first time in their prodigiously long history of fanatical non-cooperation, decided to pool their resources of mind and of material and to work as a group. Union of a sort was accomplished eventually, neither peaceably nor without highly lethal friction. They knew that a democracy, by its very nature, was inefficient. Hence a democratic form of government was not even considered. An efficient government must of necessity be dictatorial. Nor were they all exactly alike or of exactly equal ability. Perfect identity of any two such complex structures was in fact impossible. And any difference, however slight, was ample justification for stratification in such a society as theirs. Thus one of them, fractionally more powerful and more ruthless than the rest, became the all-highest, his ultimate supremacy, and a group of about a dozen others, only infinitesimally weaker, became his council, a cabinet which was later to become known as the innermost circle. 
The tally of this cabinet varied somewhat from age to age, increasing by one when a member divided, decreasing by one when a jealous fellow or an envious underling managed to perpetrate a successful assassination. And thus, at long last, the Adorians began really to work together. There resulted, among other things, the hyperspatial tube and the fully inertialess drive, the drive which was millions of years later to be given to civilization by an Arisian operating under the name of Bergenholm. Another result which occurred shortly after the galactic interpassage had begun was the eruption into normal space of the planet Eddor. I must now decide whether to make this space our permanent headquarters, or to search farther, the All-Highest radiated harshly to his council. On the one hand, it will take some time for even those planets which have already formed to cool. Still more will be required for life to develop sufficiently to form a part of the empire which we have planned, or to occupy our abilities to any great degree. On the other hand, we have already spent millions of years in surveying hundreds of millions of continua, without having found anywhere such a profusion of planets as will, in all probability, soon fill both of these galaxies. There may be certain advantages inherent in the fact that these planets have not yet populated. As life develops, we can mold it as we please. Cranjanez, what are your findings in regard to the planetary possibilities of other spaces? The term Cranjanez was not, in the accepted sense, a name. Or rather, it was more than a name. It was a key thought, in mental shorthand, a condensation and abbreviation of the life pattern or ego of that particular Edorian. Not at all promising your supremacy, Cranjanez replied promptly. No space within reach of my instruments has more than a small fraction of the inhabitable worlds which will presently exist in this one. Very well. Have any of you others any valid objections to the establishment of our empire here in this space? If so, give me your thought now. No objecting thoughts appeared, since none of the monsters then knew anything of Arisia or of the Arisians. Indeed, even if they had known, it is highly improbable that any objection would have been raised. First, because no Edorian, from the all-highest down, could conceive, or would under any circumstances admit, that any race anywhere had ever approached or ever would approach the Edorians in any quality whatever, and second, because, as is routine in all dictatorships, disagreement with the all-highest did not operate to lengthen the span of life. Very well, we will now confer as to— But hold! That thought is not one of ours. Who are you, stranger, to dare to intrude thus upon a conference of the innermost circle? I am in Philistor, a younger student of the planet Arisia. This name, too, was a symbol. Nor was the young Arisian yet a watchman, as he and so many of his fellows were so soon to become, for before Edor's arrival Arisia had had no need of watchmen. I am not intruding, as you know. I have not touched any one of your minds, have not read any one of your thoughts. 
I had been waiting for you to notice my presence, so that we could become acquainted with each other. A surprising development, truly. We have thought for many cycles of time that we were the only highly advanced life in this universe. Be silent, worm, in the presence of the masters. Land your ship and surrender, and your planet will be allowed to serve us. Refuse, or even hesitate, and every individual of your race shall die. Worm? Masters? Land by ship? The young Arisian's thought was pure curiosity, with no tinge of fear, dismay, or awe. Surrender? Serve you? I seem to be receiving your thought without ambiguity, but your meaning is entirely— Address me as your supremacy, the All-Highest directed coldly. Land now or die now. This is your last warning. Your supremacy? Certainly, if that is the customary form. But as to landing and warning and dying, surely you do not think that I am present in the flesh? And can it be possible that you are actually so aberrant as to believe that you can kill me? or even the youngest Arisian infant. What a peculiar, what an extraordinary psychology. Die, then, worm, if you must have it so, the All-Highest snarled, and launched a mental bolt whose energies were calculated to slay any living thing. In Philistor, however, parried the vicious attack without apparent effort. His manner did not change, he did not strike back. The Adorian then drove in with an analyzing probe, only to be surprised again. The Arisian's thought could not be traced, and in Philistor, while warding off the raging Adorian, directed a quiet thought as though he were addressing someone close by his side. Come in, please, one or more of the elders. There is a situation here which I am not qualified to handle. We, the elders of Arisia Infusion, are here. A grave, deeply resonant pseudo-voice filled the Edorians' minds. Each perceived in three-dimensional fidelity an aged, white-bearded human face. You of Edor have been expected. The course of action which we must take has been determined long since. You will forget this incident completely. For cycles upon cycles of time to come, no Edorian shall know that we Arisians exist. Even before the thought was issued, the fused elders had gone quietly and smoothly to work. The Adorians forgot utterly the incident which had just happened. Not one of them retained in his conscious mind any inkling that Edor did not possess the only intelligent life in space. And upon distant Arisia a full meeting of minds was held. But why didn't you simply kill them? in Philistor asked. Such action would be distasteful in the extreme, of course, almost impossible, but even I can perceive— He paused, overcome by his thought. That which you perceive, youth, is but a very small fraction of the whole. We did not attempt to slay them because we could not have done so. Not because of squeamishness, as you intimate, but from sheer inability. The Adorian tenacity of life is a thing far beyond your present understanding. To have attempted to kill them would have rendered it impossible to make them forget us. We must have time, cycles and cycles of time. The fusion broke off, 
pondered for minutes, then addressed the group as a whole. We, the elder thinkers, have not shared fully with you our visualization of the cosmic all, because until the Adorians actually appeared there was always the possibility that our findings might have been in error. Now, however, there is no doubt. The civilization, which has been pictured as developing peacefully among all the teeming planets of two galaxies, will not now of itself come into being. We of Arisia should be able to bring it eventually to full fruition, but the task will be long and difficult. The Adorians' minds are of tremendous latent power. Were they to know of us now, it is practically certain that they would be able to develop powers and mechanisms by the use of which they would negate our every effort. They would hurl us out of this our native space and time. We must have time. Given time, we shall succeed. There shall be lenses and entities of civilization worthy in every respect to wear them. But we of Arisia alone will never be able to conquer the Adorians. Indeed, while this is not yet certain, the probability is exceedingly great that despite our utmost efforts at self-development, our descendants will have to breed from some people to evolve upon a planet not yet in existence an entirely new race, a race tremendously more capable than ours, to succeed us as the guardians of civilization. Centuries passed, millennia, cosmic and geologic ages, planets cooled to solidity and stability, life formed and grew and developed, and as life evolved it was subjected to, and strongly if subtly affected by, the diametrically opposed forces of Arisia and Edor. End of chapter 1